0: radio
1: and good morning once again everybody you are listening to i-94 it is daylight savings day it is march 11th here in the kingdom of bridgeport we've got a very special show for you today joining us by phone direct from a sixth floor walk up in the east village is mr gary indiana gary are you with us yes i am welcome to the show gary it's a real pleasure to have you. you here Uh, You happen to be one of our personal favorite authors and and one of my favorite art critics, in fact. Uh, You certainly made a lot of magazines worth reading for me in the 1990s, so I'm uh, very grateful for that. Gary has a series of books out, including the one we're going to be focusing on at the start today, Three Month Fever, which is the Andrew Kananin story. It has recently been released by the MIT Press from Semiatext. Uh, for those of you who do not recognize that name, you maybe did not watch the Netflix series about the killing of Gianni Versace, Andrew Cunanan was uh, the assassin of Gianni Versace. He also um, became, I, I guess, and I don't know if this is fair to say, but he became kind of a particularly American serial killer in a way. There was a, a little bit of a body trail around Mr. Cunanan as well. And we're going to go into this very interesting book because Gary and I, I'd like to start here if we could. This is a work of... I I think that if if I'm fair in saying, and maybe you would disagree with me, but this strikes me as a nonfiction novel. It is not uh, strictly, per se, a work of reportage, but many of the things in it are true. And yet it is written in a novelistic form, and I found it extremely interesting because it it tells a great deal more about the inner life and inner workings of Andrew Anderkanan, which, of course, none of us really could have known. Most, Most of this you had to glean from your own research, but like a novel, you also had to make a lot of it up. Is that fair to say?
0: Um, well, I had to make up his subjectivity, of course, since he was dead by the time I wrote the book, but, um, I, it wouldn't be fair to say that it wasn't, um, uh, a non-fiction, well, I, I, you know, I did make some of it up, but I didn't make up any facts. I, I made up some, I, I mean, it's very, it's very clear in the book what is made up and what isn't. I mean, it's, I'm speculating on, on the mental process of somebody who is dead. So, of course, it can be verified. Um, but I did record that book for at least, I don't know, eight months. I went to every city that he stayed in for months and, you know, dug around and researched and interviewed people who'd, who'd known him. And interviewed the police and hung out with the homicide squad in Minneapolis and um then and, and Florida was helped very much by the Miami Beach police because Florida at the time had sunshine laws. I suppose they maybe still do, but um probably not as sunshiny as before. Um,
2: there's actually a, uh, a, a a very helpful foreword to uh the book from Gary that mentions <coughs> a few books that I went to the library to check out to, um, I guess, get familiar with the territory. You mentioned uh, Beyond Belief by Emlyn Williams. Yes. The Evidence of Things yes. Not Seen by Baldwin and Kaput uh, by uh, Curzio Malaparte. And you distinguish yes. those three books from from a couple others that, the two others that are probably most well-known as, as uh, U.S. true crime books, um, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which we've talked about on this show, and another book that we've talked about on this show, which is um, Norman Mailer's The Executioner's Song. Um, and and you, you specifically mentioned those books in the foreword and said three-month fever is not quite that. Um, how so?
0: Well, um of course those are both terrific books, but um I also think there's a stunt aspect to In Cold Blood as well as the Executioner song that I doesn't interest me. Oh yeah. yeah. The Bald the Baldwin book I think was probably the most compelling um, influence on how I approach this, um, and also a book by Alexander Kluger, uh, um, yeah, they didn't have the that battle. one at
2: the library. The battle.
0: Oh, it's a very hard book to come by now, but um, it's you know it's basically a documentary fiction about the Battle of Stalingrad. And uh, by uh, by documentary fiction, I mean that you know Kluge made up some of the documents, um, but many of them are dispatches that were actually conveyed by the German army back to Berlin, and, then, and so on and so forth. Um you know, I, I, I feel that uh, I, I don't want to say anything that's disparaging of another writer. I just I, I had trouble with both books, uh and and also the mailer book, um because they both seem to be slumming. Um, well, Mailer talks about I it in
2: Executioner's Song. The second half of the book, it talks about is the deals that he's trying to yeah.
0: make. Well, yeah, I mean, and, um, you know, it's, it's it's not, I it's nothing against them. They're both really good books. I just was not trying to do the same thing. I wasn't trying to write a bestseller. I wasn't trying to... Right. Uh, you know, exploit a case. I mean, I was researching the book before he killed Versace. Um, you know, because what gets lost when you call something the assassination of Gianni Versace as if he were the head of state um, <laughs> is that this guy killed four other people before he got to that one, um, you know, who were also human beings and also, you know, murder victims. Um, uh and, and only Versace gets any attention in this instance, you know, and why? because he was a fashion designer, you know he occupies about I think three pages in my entire book yeah. um,
3: which one th- th- was one of the things that I liked about the book because everyone does focus on Versace, and a lot of times um when we're writing or researching true crime, people always focus on the killers. Um, you know, I, I think one exception to the mm-hmm. rule would be like the Manson family because they killed famous people. But usually, they just focus on the serial killer. Like, if you think of someone like Eileen Warnos, you know, we don't know anything about her victims unless you watch the movie. Um, I, well, exactly. I, and yeah. so, and then Versace, of course, was a, a famous, a very famous individual. But <clears throat> one thing that I wanted to to, to bring up about your writing, Gary's, I, um, you know, we have the the phrase you know the society of the spectacle that comes from deborah and i think that um i think that what you do is you show um the spectacle that america is and sometimes um there was i read a review that that i think it was in the times of three month fever was when it first came out and they said it was talking about how bleak it was but one of the things mike and i were talking about earlier this morning was there's hilarious moments in it and I'm wondering, you know, in in your opinion, you know, do some of these reviewers just not get Gary Indiana? Because I thought, I mean, you know, obviously it's a disturbing, there's disturbing things, but there's moments of just, like, outright hilarity in this and in resentment. There were three,
2: four times in public where people looked at me like I was crazy because I I was laughing out loud reading the book.
0: Well, Well, some people just don't have a sense of humor about what they're living in, you know. And I don't know, it's like, the Thomas Bernhardt story, you know, is it a comedy, is it a tragedy? You tell me we'll both know. I mean, it's it's um uh yes, I mean it's quite deliberate that there's funny things in the book. I can't get through that kind of gruesome research without a little levity. Um believe me. <laughs> it's no fun going... Well, I did have fun going out drinking every night with the Minneapolis homicide squad, but you know, <laughs> they were very, they were very suspicious of me initially, and um, for good reason. I mean, you know, I was, um, I was trying to get something from them that they didn't want to give me, and they eventually did. Um, but, um, but also, you know, they were great fun but you know you go home at night and you think what am i doing i like i'm just <laughs> plunging myself into this nightmare scenario of um you know this guy that went off just <laughs> went off his track or stayed on it depending how you look at it you know and killed all these people um,
1: Speaking of which, we actually have a a short reading from from Gary's book. You know, we talk about these books, but it's very difficult on the radio. Uh, You know, it's not like TV. So we we have a prepared reading. This is actually from very early on in Three Month Fever. And it is about, uh, well, it is is, uh, Gary's view of how Andrew uh, dealt with his backstory and his image. So we'll be right back after this short little break.
4: Andrew had carried off endless small retouchings of his backstory in the sluggish circles of Hillcrest, tinkered with his pedigree, adding daubs of racy color in its bars and restaurants, not simply to foist between himself and people he befriended a cautious distance, but also to win their acceptance, to whittle a niche in the soporific local narrative, and Andrew believed himself, believed in the multi-faceted characters he incarnated. Now, oddly, he had become conscious for the first time of a spawning deception, acting a role at odds with the natural scan of his feelings, for although the occasion itself proclaimed that he was abandoning Hillcrest, the restaurant, and everyone present, a fair chance existed that his disappearance would not be the gradual vanishing they expected, mitigated by phone calls and letters and visits that wove a slender but tangible cord of continuity. There was in fact a strong possibility that he might dematerialize more unaccountably, leaving a sour reek of failure or pathetic pretense behind, the nervous breakdown mess of an adolescent who leaves home too early, bottoms out, and moves on, never retrieving his remaining stuff from the apartment on Robinson. There was the possibility that his new life might involve a transforming struggle, producing total amnesia about his old life. In other words, that Anthony the waiter, George the manager, and Kenneth and Robin, and these people gathered to mark his departure would, somewhere in the middle future, think differently about him perceived themselves betrayed and negated by him, unraveling his stories without generosity and citing the abandoned VCR, magazines, old bills, and dirty socks in Eric's apartment as evidence of a disordered mind, the embarrassing residue of screwed up loser whose whereabouts nobody knew. He imagined desultory late afternoon bar chatter, the sloppy talk of people complacently going nowhere, watery happy hour cocktails and big plastic tumblers, the sharply angled shadows on the pavement outside the bars. In the tropical ennui of this slow, easy town, Andrew de Silva would persist as an assortment of milling anecdotes, until the people he knew grew older and forgot about him. Speculating on rare occasions when his name came up, that he probably died. He reminded himself that dear as these people were, they did not really matter. If he walked into Flicks or some other Hillcrest gay bar ten years from now, he would find them exactly where he'd left them. At the so-called farewell dinner, Andrew said it was a bittersweet occasion. said that everyone had his own ideas about him, but nobody really knew him. It was the sort of maudlin thing most people said when leaving one place for another, and nobody thought much about it at the time.
1: And that was a reading from... Gary Indiana's three-month fever. We want to thank the Center for Search and Research for their music today, and, of course, Shanna Van Vold as always, for the readings. Gary, I happen to think that was a particularly penetrating passage because it summed up, uh, in my mind, the image of a man who isn't as interesting, frankly, as he, he thinks he is and is very concerned with surface appeal. And in reading the book, uh, it struck me that this quest for kind of a surface fascination and a frictionless um, existence so to speak is kind of what drives him and ultimately puts him over the edge
0: yes but there's m- more to that I, because one of the things that I tried to do in fact maybe the main thing I tried to do in the book what, which was written many years ago by the way it's just been reissued um, um, the, uh, it was where he came from which the, you know he came from San Diego. Um, he was his father was Filipino, um, like many, many Filipinos, his father had gotten to the United States by joining the U.S. Navy in the Philippines, and um, had uh, you know gone into one sort of enterprise or another. At one point, was a you know stock trader and ripped off a lot of his clients. Um but I mean what I discovered when I went to San Diego to live for a month and a half you, you know was that Filipinos were the lowest people on the totem pole um in the you know in the social hierarchy of San Diego, which is um pretty peculiar uh I'm not peculiar <laughs> in the sense that it's unique, but just you know the way that um, for instance, um, uh, he was able to finesse his backstory, even, because yeah, they put him in this school, Bishop's School, in, uh, um, uh, you know, um, the, the, the elite community, I'm forgetting the name of it, um, and he just, you know, constructed a different identity for himself, um, which happened to be Jewish, um, rather than Filipino, so, and um, that, I mean, you know, and the family pathology interested me quite a lot. You know, um, I don't think these things come out of nowhere. You know, he, he, I mean, his, he and his siblings and his mother were just sort of left with um, the father's pension check from the navy um, when his father took off, became, um, you know, an acolyte of some. Spiritualist, you know, Amy simple McPherson type in uh, in Montana or someplace, and then went to went back to the Philippines where he continued to pursue his spiritualist destiny. I mean, it was a pretty messed up situation that he was born into, really. Um, and you know, I don't think that he found it acceptable to be. Uh, at the bottom of the pile, Um, and who does? But his way of, you know, the I'm sorry to interrupt myself, but the thing that I've noticed about, uh, you know, doing several books about people engaged in one kind of criminal activity or another that are, you know, in some ways con artists, is that the energy that they put into the con and you know that series, Sneaky Pete, which is so wonderful, I mean, really shows this big time. Um, you know, the, the energy they put into the con is, is way in excess of what they would need to get legitimately rich, legitimately famous, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's the love of the con, in a certain way he loved this, too. You know, I mean, he, he he enjoyed it until it started to fall apart, um, and it fell apart because he wasn't a good con artist. Um, you know, he got found out. People knew he was a liar, um, not a bishop necessarily, but uh, but later.
1: Well, I'd love to get your take on the current president.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there are some similarities, although I. Just <laughs> There are quite a few similarities. <laughs> the but con artist that, is uh, it,
3: probably... Um, uh, one uh, of that
0: I, I, I don't think that... that um, I don't think Hunanman was... I mean, of course, when he killed these people, you can't really know what was going on inside. I tried to figure that out. But I don't think that he was really driven by meanness and the need to dominate other people. Um except maybe in a very, very ben- not, not, well, obviously lethal social sense. <laughs> I mean, and, and, until, until he went kind of haywire. Um, I, I think, you know, he just wanted to be accepted as something that he wasn't, um, because he knew that what he was wasn't going to be accepted by the people around him and the people that he wanted to, to be around
3: I wanted to ask you, so I first read you uh, probably in the mid-90s when Gone Tomorrow came out, um, which is what was my first introduction to Gary, Indiana. And I'll tell you, that's one of those books I've never forgotten. Um, we read, I, I've probably read thousands of books. The the last chapter of that book, um, I'll never forget. It blew my mind, although we're not talking about that. I wanted to, you were talking about getting into the mind of Cunanan and um, I, some of the stuff that you write is so memorable. Like when he's uh, in Chicago killing Lee, and and they're walking the dog, and the he tells him to in in his inner monologue to please don't hurt honey. Then he recalls yanking the deaf aids out of Lee's ears, and then you go into the description of him, you know, tearing him up with a screwdriver. But then the closing sentence is Chicago. He thought, not my kind of town, and. That was one of those moments when i burst out laughing everyone in chicago that lives here hates that song because they played it everything and um <laughs>
1: it's true it's like a pizza parlor song yeah I mean, anytime you go to portillo's to try to get a hot dog it's blaring
3: it's like new york new york you know so it's like yeah
0: yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. um and, and I, that was one of those lines but the descriptions and i i I, I talk about descriptions a lot, but I, can you? Is there a process for that, or is that just the Gary Indiana mind? I mean, is that what comes to you, or do you, do you spend a lot of time um, thinking about describing things? Because not everyone can do it, and you would think all writers would be really good at describing things, but not everyone. And, then, and your descriptions are like very memorable. Like I will that that just the part about ripping his deaf aids out of his ears, like things like that. They're very yeah, specific. It hurt and my ears. yeah, they're very specific, well, but. And memorable.
0: Well, thank you. I, I mean, I, you know, I tried to imagine what went down. You know, we couldn't get much information out of the Chicago police. Actually, that's not a surprise. (laughs) We're not not shocked (laughs) at that, Gary. No, I, I mean, the Minneapolis police could not get any cooperation from them.
1: We're also not shocked about Um, that.
0: And, um, you know, so I had to rely on redacted FBI. Uh, documents that you know were obtained from the Freedom of Information Act um, that had to do with Miglin' possible uh, previous connection to Kananen, and um, uh, there was testimony from, or uh, affidavit rather, from a rent boy that that Miglin and Kananen, or who who purported that Miglin and Kananen had hired him for a three way encounter. Um, you know, I couldn't get anything out of the Chicago police. They're <laughs> well, kind of I mean, known yeah, for I that, mean, so don't take it personally. I mean, what was it? What wasn't, Meglin, sort of the Donald. Trump, well, I mean, a legit Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, a big developer oh, right. and famous in Chicago. Yes. But not famous enough, obviously, <laughs> to put the country into an uproar. <laughs> they don't call it the assassination of Lee Meglin. Right, right. Assassination of David Madsen, but it becomes the assassination of Johnny Versace, as if you know um, a beloved <laughs> diplomat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
3: like humanitarian uh, um, or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now it's um, interesting because you know, I mean, poor man. I mean, nobody deserves that. Um, well, I suppose some people do, but <laughs> I don't think he did. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, the fashion designer was
1: harmless. Um. Well, it brings up, and this is an interesting point that I, I wanted to get to. We do have to go to a break in a couple of minutes, but before we do, uh-huh. you, you have very um, unkind words to say about journalists. You, you talk in the book, and especially in the forward, about uh, how you did get cooperation from the police, but, but journalists uh, were not of assistance to you at all, and you have some very caustic things to say about them. Uh, do you still feel that way about the profession? Because um, last I looked, I believe journalists are despised by I think ninety eight percent of the population. And <laughs> I just I kind of want to get your take on that because um, one of the things you talk well, about is the kind of mendacity of of mainstream news, and it's a very interesting topic to talk about in this day and age.
0: Well, I, I need to I need to take that back. A few steps. I mean, first of all, given what we're living in now. Uh, i've got i've done a three sixty on journalists and yeah. <laughs> i'm completely in their corner right now <laughs> and i you know i mean i think that um without journalists we would probably all be in treblinka by this time um but but um no i, I, I mean i think that what i was being critical of. I, I mean, I couldn't get any cooperation from other journals except Eric Dorn at the Chicago Tribune, um, you know, in the Cannannon matter. But what I was more, what I found more perplexing was that if you have a 24 hour news cycle, that means you have to fill it. And it starts getting filled by all kinds of, um, you know, Futile speculation, and I think that's a danger. I mean, it's obviously more than a danger. I mean, given this president, like just tweets out any stupid thing that comes into his head at three in the morning, and that's reported the next day. I mean, I can't believe that this. I mean, and this is a reproach to journalists. I can't believe that anybody is taking it seriously. The first is bozo gets the whole country, the whole world into a frenzy about we're going to have a nuclear war any minute now. And then, you know, bait and switch, I'm going to meet with Kim Jong Jones mm-hmm. <laughs> in North Korea. I mean, come on. Even the, even the hayseeds that used to believe that the traveling, you know, medicine man was going to cure their <laughs> hemorrhoids and their... You know, everything else—the <laughs> snake oil—didn't fall for that. I mean, <laughs> really. <laughs>
3: That's what I was talking about when I, I mentioned the society of the spectacle. I mean, nobody could have. And we're living in some kind of alternate reality now. It's you know, uh, ignorance is strength. You know, I mean, it's all—it's all coming true. And and I agree with you. The twenty-four news cycle is. is one other, and probably the internet too, is what you know upsets people about journalism. Because I could say, "Hey, my two co-hosts on i nInety four are crocodiles, and they come from Mars, and we could probably Google it and find that." You know, so that it's 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 beyond. I mean, it's beyond. Alex the farce. Jones
0: would advise Alex Jones would invite you on his program. It's true.
3: It's <laughs> true, the
1: lizard people. We
3: could get some of his. Yeah. Uh, colloidal minerals. <laughs>
1: we could get colloidal, oh, colloidal minerals. Uh, where's Edgar Case when you need him? This is, a, this is a good point to take a break, actually. We're going to go to okay. some underwriting, and when we come out of the break, we're going to hear one more reading from Gary's book. Once again, we're with uh, Gary, Indiana. We're talking about the book Three Month Fever, the Andrew Cannon story. It's out right now from Semiotext. We're going to take a break for underwriting, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to I-94.
4: Now the money was running out. In fact, he had no money. Now the credit was running out. Still, he gave presents, bought meals, treated himself like the Queen of Sheba. He managed to install himself in Karen and Evan's apartment on Vallejo Street after David flew back to Minneapolis. One person who saw him there describes him as glazed, distracted, off in a world of his own. At the same time, he visited his sister Gina, who had Elena's daughter Jamie staying with her. To them, he seemed not only normal, but in high spirits, brotherly, avuncular, whatever. They did the tourist thing for Jamie, Fisherman's Wharf, Ghirardelli Square, rode the bumper cars in the amusement arcade, took the cable car, went shopping. Andrew bought Jamie $100 sunglasses and slew of children's books. He got a buzz cut somewhere in the Castro. He bought cashmere socks. Andrew bought Jamie hundred-dollar sunglasses and a slew of children's books. He got a buzz cut somewhere in the Castro. He bought cashmere socks. He didn't look like someone whose inner structures were collapsing. A little out of shape, a shade preoccupied, fitfully surly, sullen, rough, phlegmatic, maybe a trifle stoned, but not the figure out the window screaming in a storm. Far from it. You just had to give him a minute to put his face on, then you'd get the jokes, the sly patter, the routines. One part of his mind continually rescued all the other parts from any prolonged contemplation of reality. Reality was what he said it was. You could not believe a word he said, not because he always lied, but because when he did lie, he would lie about anything. Kill off his family, give himself degrees from the Sorbonne, tell you he spoke fluent Hebrew, inflate the price of anything he said he paid for by as much as a 1000 but as little as $2, Claim he'd had three drinks instead of two, or two drinks instead of three, five pills instead of four, or six. Write that he was currently driving an Audi instead of a Mustang. Report that the certified public accountants he'd met in Aspen were Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, and David Schwimmer. All social relations, all histories, all facts were infinitely malleable dream substance worked into transient shapes by the verbal process. The only element that resisted his sculptural ingenuity was money. His cleverness at getting it had evaporated. Andrew seemed not to have understood this until the day he visited the travel agency on Market Street, the day his Amex was refused. He got an emergency extension of credit the next day, but it sank in that this would be the only extension of credit. And for the first time in his so-called adult life, Andrew's eyes focused on the naked lunch at the end of his fork. After it all came down, Elsie shrewdly observed that what other people thought of Andrew was, quote, more important to him than life itself, end quote. This preposterous fact is the purloined letter heading in plain sight.
1: And welcome back, everyone, to I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker. I'm here with Jeremy Kitchen. I'm Michael Sack. And we're today speaking with author Gary Indiana. He is the author of many books, but the book we're discussing right now is Three Month Fever, The Andrew Canaan Story. So
3: Gary, I wanted to ask you. So this came out in 1999. It was republished last year. Um, we have three Month <laughs> fever. Then we have resentment, which is the your novel about the Martinez, aka Menendez brothers, and then depraved indifference. What brought Semiotext to the table to republish these uh, in this day and age? I, I think uh, it's almost like you predicted the future. They're very timely, um, and 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 you're writing about our our, our very Weird culture that we're we're living in, but what was the um, what was the reasoning behind bringing back the trilogy instead of let's say Horse Crazy or Gone Tomorrow or Rent Boy, which was funny because I was trying to find those and they're all out of print now.
0: Oh, actually, um, well, Gone Tomorrow and um, and Let It Bleed, which is a, you know my first collection of essays and. First Crazy are being republished at the end of this year by uh Seven Stories Press. Excellent. Um, and um, actually there's a very small press called Itna Press that you can get uh um, a reissue of Do Everything in the Dark and uh and there's another book called Tiny Fish That Only Want to Kiss, which contains Rent Boy along with the first two books of short stories that I published. So the idea is that by the time I croak, everything will be back into trend. <laughs> and, I, you know, and I, you know, hopefully will write one or two more books before that happens. But if not, everything will be in print when I croak, um, at least.
3: <laughs> We're very familiar with Seven's story. We're all big Nelson Algren fans on this show. Um, so the next question I wanted to ask, too, was... So we have Cunanan, the Menendez brothers. Um, we didn't get a copy of Depraved Indifference, and I read it a long time mm-hmm. ago. But what made you decide on these particular cases?
0: Um, huh. That's a very good question. I mean, the, the resentment I was certainly drawn to the uh, Menendez brothers' story because I was living in Los Angeles much of the time. And. Um, and it just uh um, you know i I'm a Freudian, basically, and I think that everything as it happens in your life is in some way inflected by the people that brought you into the world, and the same is true for them and the same is true for the for their parents but you know you're you're by a lot of things, of course, but the family dynamic in the Menendez space was um Exceptionally, um, how to put it, it had the scope of a, of a great Russian novel, The Trial, because so much was brought into evidence. Uh, you know, going back to the first, the, for before these kids were born, just about everything that had ever happened in their lives was brought out in court. So it had its own problem. Like that. But what if this? Resentment. What if this emotion of resentment was the only emotion that you felt? <laughs> that's where that book came from. <laughs> it was just you know having this poison you know circulate through the whole bloodstream of a vast American city uh, because you, you know in those, at that time you know you'd turn you'd get in your car and the trial would be on the radio, and people had bumper stickers, you know, saying, I believe Lyle and Eric, and and, and all these things formed not just a, uh, a murder case, but a kind of referendum on American child-rearing and, <laughs> <laughs> and family dynamics, you know, because whether or not the, the, the purported abuse. Uh, happened, which I believe that it did, but not quite in the way that it was presented. Um, uh, you know the, the whole thing was money, 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 yeah <laughs> and right. that, with Canaan, and the lack of money suddenly, when he had found kind of an easy way to get it for a long time and in the in the third book these are these are professional con artists that are, you know, conning other people out of money, money, money. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a lot, of, I mean, there's a lot to that phrase that they always use, follow the money, Yeah. you know, but with the Menendez case, there was this added thing, at least for me, which was, nobody kills their parents just for money.
3: <laughs> no, absolutely not, and, and it's so funny, too, because and uh, you know what i learned in the book and i i remember that case but i um i was in my late 20s and doing a lot of drugs and i don't remember much of that era but i you know the way that it's portrayed that this like rich guy and his wife are sitting there eating ice cream watching it's a wonderful life and i'm i'm laughing because i'm sick but like you know then these two kids just come in with mossbergs and just light the you know light these people up and (laughs) it's it's a very um unsettling picture, <laughs> for lack of a better Yes,
0: yeah, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It is a very unsettling picture. But, you know, the whole first part of the recounting of the, of the killing.
3: Oh, absolutely. You know, it
0: was a complete Tommy, but also, I you know, I will confess, you're know, totally inspired by Thomas Bernhard's book, The Lime Works, hmm. where, was, you know, this guy has shot his wife, who's been in an invalid chair, 20 years from taking the wrong medications. And, you know, this guy who's selling insurance in the village is going from tavern to tavern, and everybody in each tavern has a different account of what happened.
3: I (laughs) did not know that. I'm going to read that. That's going on my
0: list. Oh, it's it's really a truly great novel. You You said said it's it's, Lime Work? The Lime Work. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's about a man named Conrad who has been trying... A book on the for like thirty years and hasn't gotten the first sentence written, <laughs> but bought the lime works as the ideal place in which to write it, um, and he lives there with his wife, who may also have been his sister. We don't know. <laughs> you know, Bernhardt um, tends to have a lot of incest cases in his <laughs> novels. Um, yeah, how- um, and, and the, the con artists were, um, you know, these people that tried to con this woman out of uh, a townhouse in Manhattan, ultimately. But they had already just, dis- I mean, they were very much, you know, in the commandment manner, they'd already disposed of two lawyers, one insurance adjuster. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving a trail of bodies um, wherever they went. Yeah. I mean, con artists don't usually kill people, you know, but in this case, they did. Um, well, speaking of it, con- was a mother son thing. I mean, first it was a mother husband thing, then it was a mother son thing. After mm-hmm. the husband died.
1: Oh, okay. So it's a family business. Well,
0: it's family enterprise. Yes, I, right. you can say yeah. it that way.
1: <laughs> I wanted to ask you, speaking of con artists, because you did write a book that uh, we we haven't talked about yet. Uh, I think it, it came out maybe ten or fifteen years ago. But you wrote a book about how Arnold Schwarzenegger became the governor of California, called the Schwarzenegger Syndrome, and the thesis of that book is that Schwarzenegger won because he was the most popular candidate in a very flawed electoral process. And again, getting back to what we're living through right now, I wondered if when the election happened in November 2016, if you woke up and said, you know, I wrote about this 15 years ago and no one listened to me.
0: Um, You know, I wasn't particularly focused on what I had written (laughs) in the past (laughs) the morning after the election. I um, I I can't say that it I mean, you know, a lot of times if you write these things and it's like whistling past the graveyard. Yeah. You know, you you're kind of saying, Well, okay, the worst that could happen is this but it, it it maybe won't happen. But with the Schwarzenegger syndrome, and by the way, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been an infinitely better president. Pretty <laughs> much anyone the one yeah. We've yeah. <laughs> but then so with a fire hydrant, I mean <laughs> Um, y- y- well, yes, I mean, of course I saw it like coming. You yeah, know, I mean, the 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 whole thing with the whole California recall election was so ridiculous. You could run for governor if you put up $5,000. So everybody from Angeline, you know, who takes out billboards advertising right. her existence, I mean, who has never been known to do anything, uh, from, you know, I think Larry Flint ran, I think, you know,
3: Kind of ran.
0: Office, your people ran. kind of came out of the woodwork to run for governor because it was fun and it was free publicity. Um, you know, Arianna Huffington, if she dropped out, um, you know, she, was, she would certainly have done it. I don't know. I mean, Schwarzenegger proved to be not the worst governor California could ever have. I happen to think I California where I live half the time now has the best governor it could
3: have uh, yes agreed um, and i'm sorry jellyby Alfred um, did not run for governor he ran for mayor of san francisco i, I, I san francisco. just blurted that out
0: oh. oh oh well um anyway jerry brown at least this week is uh, totally okay in my book right um you know but <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Sessions wanted to pursue the lawsuit. It would run on longer than the Trump administration. Um,
2: it's interesting that you, we uh... see it
0: all the time. Uh, uh, sorry. Go ahead,
2: go ahead, Gary. Go ahead.
0: Oh, I mean, you know, we've been seeing these immigration raids all over California. I mean, you are going after people in Seven Eleven, working in Seven Elevens. They're trying to they're trying to arrest people in restaurants. Um,
2: You know, three-month fever starts out in California and ends in Florida, and I think those are probably the two weirdest states in the Union. Um, I
0: think California, I I have to say, I'm a booster for California. I I think, you know, of course, one good shake, and there goes the Ferrari. That's true. You know, but... but, um, you know, California
2: is is actually on the cutting edge of things. One one of those uh point descriptions that made me laugh out loud in public was of San Diegans um, going to they go to work they go to the office on the on the the weird off chance that they don't feel like golfing or or water skiing or, or well yeah doom. San Diego is rather yeah. special yeah. I mean <laughs> yeah. uh, San Diego's yeah. well and and you said. Um, you had visited it's all a, these it's cities. It's a navy town.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, La Jolla. Um, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well,
2: you had, you said you you had visited uh, a bunch of cities to to research this book. Um, La Jolla, San yeah. Diego, Minneapolis, Chicago. But did you go to Manila, the Philippines?
0: Uh, no, no, no. I went to Miami. Okay. I didn't <laughs> 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 no, I, I, <laughs> no Manila and, well. You know, of course, it was a more welcoming place at the time than it is now. But I mean, I (laughs) just I didn't want to spend all of my advance on traveling around and renting apartments in different cities, and certainly not different countries.
2: You know, Um, you you mentioned Thomas Bernard. I I think that's that's interesting um, that you mentioned him as a source of inspiration. I think it speaks to the uh, to the to your choice of style, the way you write that, that um, the novelistic style. And one of the things that was um, interesting about reading Three Month Fever for, for me is that I was really, I was plunged into the story. I didn't know much about the, the Cunanan story. And um, it can be really disorienting because it's not really linear. Sometimes you're inside Andrew's mind. Sometimes you're receiving testimony from uh, friends who remember things maybe a little differently than they actually went down. Where chronologically, it it doesn't um, it doesn't take place in uh, linear linear time. Yeah, from place to place. And I, I wanted to know if you if it just came out that way or if you toyed with the idea of of um, Making the story straight, so to speak.
0: Um, actually, I think my editor at the time kept saying, "Chronology is your friend." And of course, then I just decided to, uh, to go the completely the opposite <laughs> way. Um, because <laughs> anytime anybody tells me how to do something, I yeah. do the <laughs> opposite. But I thought that um, actually, I mean, I liked the idea of breaking it up, like into. Um, Into more of a collage or impression, because the trouble with doing this kind of research is you get many contradictory um, stories from people, and then every once in a while you get a piece of hard evidence, like this FBI report that I basically reproduced, Um, or you know from the the coroner in Hennepin County. you know, and I thought, you know, this is, it's, it's good to have a little, you know, documentary reality here besides, you know, my reportage. It's, um, and, you know, so sometimes I just basically reproduced what people told me verbatim, you know, and other times, you know, still um, had to fill in the blanks. And there are a lot of blanks in that story.
3: Uh, Gary, I want to ask you a question about resentment. I just have to ask because um, another memorable paragraph, uh, another memorable chapter in a, in a Gary Indiana novel. But the the chicken wing uh, interrogation during the trial.
0: Oh, of, of Detective um,
3: Lewandowski? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that
3: that to me like was one of the funniest things I've ever read, and. Um, so, and if you could just talk a little bit about that that scene and and how you documented it, because it's it's you know we're we're looking at these two kids that blasted their parents with shotguns, and then what happened is one of the brothers and I, I can't remember which one bought a restaurant and he was having the detective t- test the wings for him.
0: Yes, blind blind taste testing the the chicken wings. Yes, the, <laughs> the broasted chicken wings. Yeah, and there's and well that was just. I, you know i I mean it was true that while menendez was, was trying to buy a restaurant, i guess in New Haven or something, and um you know, and I just took it from there. I thought you know it seems like something this character would do yeah, the interrogation you know,
3: to, the it, interrogation by quilty the the lawyer she, she she said, would these be so-called broasted wings, Mr. Lewandowski? That's right. And the so-called broasted wings are cooked without batter. They're plain. You have a choice of dipping sauces on the side. And then it goes into a paragraph of <laughs> him describing each sauce and each chicken wing. And, you know, that's, that's like one of the things, you know, when I'm reading, when I'm reading your work, that, that that's like, uh, you know, obviously we're big fans of you, but that's like beyond genius you know, someone to describe that, because it's really, it sums up, like, the, the you know, the Hollywood, um, just way that our, you know, these, these high-profile trials are, and just the ridiculousness of it all.
0: Well, the, the, the thing is that, uh, yes, I exaggerated a lot of stuff into the cosmos, but they're really not that far off what people were saying in court. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're really... You know if you read a trans, if you read a trial transcript any trial transcript but especially that kind of trial I, I, the minutiae that people get into and the questioning you know and and here's something that your listeners may not know the reason we don't have cameras in federal courts is because the is because the stenographer has a copyright of the transcript
3: Individual? and they make a
0: fortune. Uh-huh. An okay. individual contract,
3: copyright, copyright. Yes. I mean, yes. Yes. Wow. And
0: so, and so, it's sold through the clerk of court like this. You wonder why big news organizations get the scoop or used to. It's because if you get a page of transcripts the first day uh, that, it, that it's issued, it's two dollars a page. If you get a, you know, a few days later, then it's a dollar a page. And it goes down in price the older it gets as news.
1: I had no um. idea.
0: <laughs> That's great so, stuff. Um, think of that when you wonder why we can't see what happens in federal court. Um,
1: we will. We actually have to wrap it up. We've been speaking with Gary, Indiana. We're actually going to give Gary the last word. We've we've talked a little bit about the killing of, of uh, Janet Versace, but the last reading as we go into our break is going to be of the actual killing of Gianni Versace, the three pages that, that Gary wrote in the book. Gary, thanks so much for being with us today. We really, really appreciate Thank your time. You, Gary. Thank
3: you, Thank
0: uh, you, Gary. It's my pleasure. Am I leaving you now? We, uh,
1: you are leaving us, and, and we will see okay. you soon. Enjoy New York City. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> next week we'll be with Hanif Abd That'll be a special show taped on Monday at 10 o'clock, but it will repeat in our normal slot of Sunday at 11 a.m. For everybody here at I-94, I'm Jamie Trecker. We'll see you next week.
4: Andrew supposed that the famous designer had been working on behalf of the voices in his head all along. That Versace's mental voice was directing all the others. What would happen was Andrew would make contact. A wordless understanding would be reached. Versace would usher him into the mansion and later spirit him to safety. Versace had already balanced quite a bit more of his karma than what was being asked of Andrew. Andrew, in his new humility, would learn much more of the invisible world through Versace. Perhaps he would even have carnal relations with Versace if various spirit entities saw fit. But then, when Versace's corporeal form passed Andrew's on the narrow sidewalk, the form's eyes flickered with alarm, even as its mouth gave a polite smile. Right at that second, as Versace crossed the road, the voices whispered that a malign current had taken over Versace's body. The real Versace had been zapped right out of his albuminous container, and this current had recognized Andrew's terrestrial incarnation, would return to Versace's house and call the authorities, casting Andrew forever out of the divine plan. He was directed to wait around the corner until the form returned. In hardly any time at all, he saw the false Versace coming back, arms full of magazines passing the corner. Andrew got the gun out and followed. He looked at Versace. Versace looked at him. What if I'm completely crazy? Flashed in Andrew's head as he fired the gun. Fired again. He looked at what he'd done. People came running. Andrew ran. He ran to the alley and up the alley to the garage. In front of the garage, two cars were locked in a fender bender. Traffic cops were at the scene. Andrew slipped into the garage and up the cement stairs to the truck. He couldn't drive it out with the police downstairs, so he changed his clothes and ran up to the roof. Ran on all four sides of the roof in search of a fire escape. Nothing. Found a set of back stairs on the ramp below and followed them down to Collins Ave. Up Collins to Lincoln Road, down Lincoln Road to the beach. Andrew covered 30 blocks in no time whatsoever. I can't get off Miami Beach without a car, he thought. Then his voices reminded him about the houseboat. He'd passed it a million times, never a light on or any sign of life inside. Wait until dark, the voices said. And Andrew did, and after that he never heard the voices again. I 94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the work of Gary Indiana, cultural critic and author of Three Month Fever, part of the Semiotext Reissue series. This episode originally aired on March 11, 2018. I 94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green. Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I 94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpin'radio.com.